police found out for me. Yeah. 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 Uh, Father Hayden and, and, and Sushi, what would bother you? Yeah. Like, open you did it all right? I don't know. Uh, as long as it wouldn't bother her, I'll be. It's, it's a bleak. It doesn't bother your screen or anything. Right. Right. That would be nice. Okay. Yes, that might be nice too. Goodness knows, we could all use more of that. Especially during these months. Yes, brought to our lives. Yeah, well, I wrote her husband in my condolence card that there would be a piece of her. She was my child as well. Oh. And so, about. All right. I have eleven thirty, so let's go ahead and get started. Okay, okay. Is this eleven thirty? I'm oh, sorry, 10 30. Yeah. Like, I was yeah, looking at two different things on there, yeah. All right, 10 30. That doesn't bother me, yeah. As long as Elena and Carol are okay. I love someone. Do I want? Okay. Now, quick question before we begin. Uh, Bishop has been used, has he been using the BCP or has he been using a particular translation of this for to read the psalm at the, uh, at the beginning? We like, each bring our own. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Who knows? I can't remember. He'll read. Uh, NIV. NIV. Mm-hmm. 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 No, it's New King James Version. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Can everyone hear me online? We all good? Sound okay? Okay. All right. Hey, Dad, always Good memory. We'll have to ask her after this. If she, maybe she's just running a few minutes late like we were today. We'll find out. All right, well, let us begin. The Lord be with you. I'm with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, I can't imagine a more perfect psalm uh, to be studying today than Psalm 72, given uh, that we are in the last days of the Octave Epiphany. Um, uh, The Psalm 72 is uh, mixed up a lot of the uh, mass settings for the Feast of the Epiphany. Likely, if you were at Mass this morning, you heard uh, what we heard in our uh, offertory uh, verse and our communion verse are going to be featured from this psalm. So it's actually a a perfect Epiphany psalm. Uh, So we'll go ahead and read it. Uh, to get a, a sense of the sweep of it, and like we were talking about last time I was with you all, um, it's good to kind of get a sense of the full sweep of the thing before we go with, uh, looking myopically at any individual part. Um, this is how good poetry study is done. Um, and the Psalms are more than poetry, but not less than poetry. So we'll start with it that way. So I'll be reading it from the New King James Version. Psalm 72, a Psalm of Solomon. 
Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow down before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence and precious shall, there, shall be their blood in his sight. And he shall live and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth on the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Okay. So much to work with in this one. Um, so let's uh, let's jump in and get started. Have a seat right here at the right hand there. Go ahead. So sometimes uh, it's the case that the epigram of a poem or a psalm is something we take for granted, yet it can tell us an awful lot. In this case, Psalm 72 is the last psalm of the um is the last psalm of the second book of Psalms. And I'm sure Bishop has talked about this before. There are five books of Psalms in the Psalter uh, that correspond broadly to the five books of the Torah. So, and you can see a resonance between book one and Genesis, book two and Exodus and so on and so forth. Uh, and there is a way of, of, that you can kind of see these things in dialogue with each other. And with Psalm 72, we're ending the second book here and we're ending it with a song of Solomon, but it is likely that that um, article there of is better translated for. Um, and so it can, it's, it can be inflected either way, but the, for the reason at the end of this psalm, we have that um, editorial note, the, 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 uh, the poems, the uh, prayers of David, son of Jesse are ended. This is likely a song of David 
for his son Solomon. So this gives us the language of the king and the king's son. Um, and the prayer that he is making for the reign of his son as he is uh, coming to his coronation and coming into his kingdom. So that's something we start with there. And a lot can, a lot can be kind of ascertained from that. So what we're dealing with here in Psalm 72 is the pivot point between two kingdoms, the two most glorious kingdoms of all the kings in the history of Israel. The first being, of course, King David, the second being King Solomon. And they are glorious for very different reasons because uh, their king, uh, the men who occupied those kingships were very different men. David, of course, is a man of blood. He is a man of war. Uh, and he is the one who subjugates the land. And then Solomon, through the wisdom that God gives him at his request when God offers him anything, he then prospers the land and fills it with wealth and fills it with prosperity. And so this is a kind of point of pivot. And God, in his revelations to David, had started to suggest this of his son Solomon. Um, and when David tried to perfect the kingdom himself and build the temple and to kind of finalize the last bits of the kingdom, God said to him uh, through the, through the uh, prophet that you will not be the one to finish the work of settling this kingdom, um, mainly because he was a man of blood. Um, he was a man who had shed innocent blood, but he was also a man um, who, would, who was a man of war, and this went sort of against the grain of being able to occupy that priestly duty of temple building. Um, and so these things could not go together. Solomon, on the other hand, would be permitted to build the temple. David was permitted to set aside the boundary lines of the temple on that high point of the city of Jerusalem after he conquered it. Um, and so what we're dealing with here is what will now be possible now that this final, that fi this final considered finally established until the house of the God was established on the high place of the kingdom. And so in this case, that's, we're going to be dealing with the kind of Acropolis of Jerusalem, the, the high rock um, where the temple is going to be established. That will be fi the final touch, of the, the kind of the, the, the capstone that allows the nation to now uh, like operate like a, like a country should because the God has been set in his house. And so uh, all of that is just in the background imagination of ancient Near Eastern peoples, that your city's not really done, your kingdom is not really functional until you start to do this thing, until you start to have the worship of the God at the center of that kingdom. Conversely, if anything disrupts the worship of that God in the kingdom, there's going to be a, a trickle-down disruption in the operation and prosperity of that kingdom, whether or not it's immediately apparent. And so if you have uh, the disruption of the temple worship and the cult in the center of the city, there's going to be a trickle-down effect of, of, having, like, uh, of having an undermining of the permanence and prosperity of the people as you go, go about that. And it may take a while for that to become apparent, but it becomes effective the second that that worship is disrupted. And so there's going to be this kind of uh, relationship for the rest of the Psalter um, between when the worship is going well, it will ensure the stability of kingship and also prosperity for the people. When the worship is disrupted, that is the beginning of the end until it is restored and the people repent and turn back towards that right worship again. So with that said, this psalm likely for Solomon is, to, is with an eye for this final establishment of the kingdom in the temple building project that becomes the first work of his kingdom building. Um, Solomon has the burden of a long reign. 
um, in his, and, and he will have this glorious initial period where he finishes the temple and finalizes the kingdom of David and proves himself the true heir of David. And yet he's going to have the burden of decades of leadership after this in which to get it all wrong. <laughs> and this is true of anyone who stays in power for kind of too long. Any worldly power, any, wor- any man who's, or woman who stays in power for too long is um, without kind of the, a, a, a kind of cessation of that, they tend to go crazy after a while, and the, and the, and that sense of things just kind of erodes at them. And this is um, this is one part of the sad reality of all kings. And Solomon will reflect on this in the book of Ecclesiastes, right? He'll say that like, yeah, we we flourish in this, and then we start to give way to folly at the end. And so this is where we we end up with that. Sit up, please. Here, please. Excuse me, folks. Hey. Okay, so let's jump into the first verses here. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. This is a prayer um, that corresponds to that um, vignette in the narrative portion of the Old Testament where we see Solomon being visited by God and offered whatever he would of God. And so he's, he's like, would you have, you know, power? Would you have great riches? Would you have great conquest? And he requests of the Lord wisdom. And this, is a, this corresponds to this prayer that is offered in the voice of David, that uh, the, the king that succeeds him, his son Solomon, would be given the judgment of God, the discernment of God. And this is a really, um, like, a, a, a very perceptive thing. It's asking that the, that the mind of God and the authority that comes with it, the ability to exercise kingship, um, would be nothing less than that which is in, God, in God's own mind, that the mind of the king would be as the mind of God, and that his righteousness would also attend it, which is also a really significant thing when we think about David's backstory and what happened to his kingdom that David's kingdom was flourishing and unified and, a, and was one kingdom until his great moral failure, his lapse in righteousness and what happened there is that immediately the sword never left his house. And so to ask for judgment, the judgment, divine, the divine ability to judge and the righteousness of God. This is something that David, that in the voice of David is, is really poignant because it, it suggests, you know, David's reflection on his own kingship and the things that tore apart the integrity that he established um, in, in the early days of his kingship. And by the end, he had lost another, he lost two sons to rebellion. His family was in tatters and, and, and multiple people had tried to kill Solomon at that point. And it was a, it was a real mess. Um, and so, but, and so when he asks, asks for this, we have to read it in the backdrop of that reflection upon his own failures as a king and asking that his son would exceed him uh, in his kingship. Now, what begins in these next verses here, he will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Um, This is going to be one of the most recurring um, terms in this psalm. We'll see it throughout most of the movements of the poem uh, of judging the poor with justice. And seeing this as actually the mark in the ancient world and and ideally in in our modern world as well, of, of good and virtuous rulership. Um, because of all the people in your kingdom, the poor are the easiest ones to neglect. Why? Because they can't offer you anything. And that is the, the, most, that is the, the pragmatic reality of, of ancient kingship and modern kingship and modern rulership is that it is very easy to privilege the, the, the rich and powerful and it's very easy to neglect the poor 
because the poor can't um, offer you any kickbacks. They can't offer you any perks for doing them favors with your authority, your kingly authority. So this is going to be a recurring mark of a righteous king, um, both here and in the rest of the Psalter. Um, and it becomes also a mark that when this is missing, it's a sign again, it's a symptom of a failing kingdom in God's eyes. So as the, pro the prophetic literature begins to unfold um, in the second half of Israel's kingdom, um, we have Elijah, Elisha, and all the minor prophets that follow after them, all the, all the prophets that follow. One of the most prevalent themes in all of the prophetic literature will be looking for the symptom of whether the poor are being treated with justice or not. And if they are, it means that likely the kingdom is healthy and righteous. And if they are not, it means that something is awry, even if everything else appears to be going swimmingly. This is one of those fatal symptoms of a terminal illness to the kingdom. So uh, keep an eye for that because it's going to come back and it's going to bring us, it's going to bring us, bring us around again. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. Um, in the psalm, uh, the, uh, the poetic imagination of the psalms, uh, mountains often stand for like um, people with power. Um, they're like a visual symbol to represent kings or, or governors or great leaders. Um, and so when mountains are brought are, are said to be brought low, or when mountains are lifted up, this is a way of describing the assignment or the removal of someone from power. Um, little hills um, often refer to people with less less power and less you know worldly means. Um, and so again, this is a repetition of that. Um, usually, it's like people with a more with a more normal estate of life, or people who are not endowed with great wealth, great beauty, great power, great uh, prowess. Um, so keep in mind that whenever you see that in the Psalms going forward. Uh, mountains always always stand in as a visual symbol for great ones or even kingdoms if they're really big mountains. Um, he will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. So this introduces the flip side of, of a protector, um, which is to uphold the cause of the needy and the poor and the powerless, but also to stand in the way of and to resist the oppressor. And this goes hand in hand. Um, with this idea of kingship. It's not only a kind of passive protection, but an active protection as well, that the king must not only not do the wrong thing, but he must also work to ensure the upholding of righteousness by others as well. And so we even pray for this now in Mass just now, right? When we pray for the leaders, the sitting leaders of the country, right? We said that they will uphold, you know, virtue and punish vice, right? And maintain thy, thy true religion and virtue. Um, and we continue to pray for this because, again, as in this time, so in our time, this is a symptom of a dying culture when this is not in place. So this is our opening here. It's We can see it densely packed into this, the uh, in the voice of David, a reflection on the Davidic kingdom, which was great and prospered until a lapse of wisdom and a lapse of righteousness began to eat away at it from the inside. God is faithful to his covenant to David in order in, in, in placing one of his own seed on the throne of his kingdom and then promises that if he continues in righteousness, he will be prospered and that his kingdom will endure and that the, the line of David will never depart from the throne. And so this is David's prayer, because what, what is he what is what is he seen in his own life and what is he hoping for his son? That his son is not going to make the mistakes, same mistakes as him but also that his son is not going to make the same mistakes that many kings that he had um, interaction with have made. 
and that is by falling into the easy error of privileging only those who can do something for him and winning the short-term ascent into, into prosperity at the cost of the long-term stability of the kingdom. And that's our first movement there. Then we, we, we change perspective here. All right? Let's come into this next verse here. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. Okay. Who do we imagine that to be there? Who is the they and who is the you? Whenever we see pronouns, we should always ask, what are the antecedents of those pronouns? What are the subjects that they're standing in for? Well, just prior in the verse, they're talking about the oppressor. So they would be the oppressor. Okay, that's exactly right. Right. So it's direct antecedent. This is a verse just prior to it. They being those who might oppress the poor and needy. And you, which is a bit of an anomaly in the psalm tradition. It's worth noting there. Um, it's worth noting that um, the direct address of a, of a figure within a psalm is a little bit odd. And it happens very, very, very rarely in the psalms. Um, so, but in this case, yeah, the most obvious antecedent of it is uh, the oppressors will fear the righteous and and a righteous king who has the mind of God. Yeah. As long as the sun and moon at uh, generations, another way of translating this, as long as the sun and as long as the moon, generations untold, right? Uh, generations stretching beyond the imagination. And we'll recall, of course, that um, the, this image of the sun and moon are also images of authority. Um, both of transitory authority and of permanent authority, and the contrast between those two, which is often a focus of the Psalms. Now, let's think about that, because we, when we think about authority, we often just assume that without realizing we're thinking of two different things, that there is authority, and then there's the authority that someone bears in a, in a season and in a time, right? And this is reflected in the sun and the moon image um, throughout the Psalm tradition. The sun, right, is a steady presence, you know, illuminating the day. The moon, however, admits of change, right? It waxes, it wanes, it's sometimes full and lustrous. Sometimes it's a new moon and it's dark, right? And this is a way of reflecting on the fact that there's a contrast between uh, authority as such, which comes from God, and is, is going to sort of pictorialized in the image of the sun, radiant always, illuminating everything, and clarifying and bringing into the light everything it touches. And the moon, which is a kind of image of fleeting and inconsistent application of that light, reflection of that light, right? Which is sometimes very, very much imitative of the sun, right? If we've ever been um, away from the city on a, a really full moon night, you can almost get sunburned from it. It's so, it's so bright. But also we know what a new moon like night can feel like where it's like is I think the stars and the moon have all gone out, right? They've been put out and it's very, very dark. And this is the experience of living under authority a lot of the time. And this is a reflection on kingship here, which sometimes the king, the sitting king, doesn't adequately reflect the, the, the luminosity of the authority that God provides to kings. And sometimes... It's just we're all cast in total darkness because they have turned away, right? Because something has obscured that light. And so this is, of course, drawing from the image of the fourth day of creation in Genesis chapter 1, right? Where the first rule, the first mention of governance, authority, and, and rulership is, in, is tied in with the creation of the sun and the moon. And these are always images of authority over the earth to rule the day and to rule the night season. 
So, may they fear you as long as the sun and as long as the moon, generations untold. Now, may... Come back to my NKJV here. Throughout all generations, he shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. Okay, this image here. Um, in ancient Near Eastern cultures and in places that don't admit of a kind of commercialized agriculture um, and, and a, an easy importing of all their consumer goods, um, very often, one of the other symptoms of a worthy kingship in a just society was the fact that it was visited with um, agricultural prosperity. And a lot of ancient Near Eastern poetry from Egypt all the way up into the Fertile Crescent of Mesopotamia featured, um, you know, when, when uh, poems were written to extol the goodness of a king, they would often use images of incredible fecundity of agriculture to reflect that. Right? And we'll get some of those images in this poem that are drawn from that tradition later on when we talk about grain that grows, that is, that grain is so prolific, it's run out of room in the fields. And so it has to start growing on the tops of mountains, right? And also grain stalks and corn stalks that are so tall, they resemble cedar trees in Lebanon, right? Which are massive and known to be like worthy, strong. You're like, you're going to say like a grain stalk, which we've all seen as a very flimsy stock, is so thick and tall that it, it represents, it's like it's like a cedar tree. Sounds like a right. fishing story. You yeah, know, exactly. Well, you should have seen this big. bass. It was this big, you know. It took three hours, you know. It dragged the boat underwater, you know, and all this stuff. Yeah. This is, uh, again, uh, it admits of a bit of hyperbole here. Hyperbole, of course, being a literary poetic device of exaggeration for the sake of making a larger point, which is, in this case, that this will be a divinely blessed kingship. And so evidently divinely blessed that these miraculous kinds of agricultural prosperity will do that. Most of us have never spent time or very rarely spent time in wheat fields to appreciate that image and very rarely have experienced um, like the, the effects of famine. But the idea is, and we'll see like in the book of Kings, for example, when Ahab and Jezebel are in charge, what begins to happen? Drought and famine. Because Jezebel has installed the worship of the Canaanite gods in the temple space, right? And the king has capitulated to that idolatry and to uh, serve a foreign queen. And so, so when, we're, when we see this kind of like the drying up of agricultural prosperity, it's a sign that things are, some, again, a symptom that something is not well in the kingship of the land. Uh, a fun kind of messianic note, um, when you read Revelation, that doesn't change. Revelation, actually, the book of Revelation draws from this tradition so that when you see in the city of God, right, the new Jerusalem that descends from heaven, along the banks of the river of life are, tw are 12 trees of life that are always in fruit no matter what season it is, right? Again, this kind of, this image of perfect kingship, which results in zero disruption to the agricultural fecundity of the land. Right. But there's a close connection always between what, it, what the people are doing and what the quality of the land is. And people's actions can blight the land. That is the whole scriptural imagination that we have a very close relationship with the land. Um, and when we do things that are wrong, the whole creation, namely the land, suffers for it under our under us. That's right. So when when St. Paul says in Romans eight, right, the creation was subjected to futility. Not of its own will, but of the will who, of the one who subjected it to futility, that being all of us. Yeah.
So, he shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish, and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. Right, which is, to, which is, is, is again, to say forever. Okay, so let's pause there. Uh, as we kind of tie these images together, we're seeing the departing king pray for the incoming, the, in, the incoming king, and for the father praying for his son's kingdom. Here, let's keep in mind that pattern, and then take take in mind all these effects that we should expect to come from that wisdom, right rulership, um, the, the 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 lawful protection against oppress, oppressors, and then agricultural fecundity. Now. Again, as we talked about last time, this is shaping our theological imagination. This is why we one of the reasons why we spend so much time in the Psalms. So, with that, um, what kind of what kind of impressions is this making on all of you? What kind of things are coming to mind into the you know into kind of your imagination? Uh, what kind of thoughts is this provoking in you? And people online, jump in too. This made me think of um, how Jesus used the sun and the moon. You know, as an example, the sun will be turned to blood or something like that, and you know, the moon into darkness. So mm. he uses those symbols of power and authority. Um, that's what was standing out to me. Under his it's, rule is going to be, you know, fecundity. I love that word. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's what stands out to me. It, it seems to me too that when. We are under good rulership. We do better. Yeah. When we are under bad rulership, we do worse as a country, as a nation. I think that's exactly right. The symptoms are a little different. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just hearing Jesus shall reign where'er the sun, you know, until moons shall wax and wane no more. Right. No, that's right, and, and that image itself is striking, right? Where, and especially we, we remember the moon is an image of of um, the capriciousness of authority, mm. right? And the inconsistency of authority. If the moon doesn't wax or wane anymore, mm. and it just perfectly reflects the full light of the sun, that's an unnatural image mm. in a way because it doesn't admit of the moon cycle. But it reflects in this kind of poetic sensibility, right? What? What, is, what, about, what does it reflect about the authority of the sitting king on the work in the world? In alignment with the sun. Perfectly. Yeah. And unchangingly. Mm-hmm. Which is which is not true of David, sadly, and will not be true of Solomon. But it is true of Christ. Right. And like you were saying in the book of Revelation, you were saying those twelve trees, I was just hearing, you know, like by their fruit, you will know them. And it reminds yes. me of, of paradise, which those mm-hmm. trees were probably always in bearing fruit. I don't know, mm-hmm. but I'm just saying, it's just like, with God, it is always that. I don't know. And the enemy's always trying to take that away. But, uh, I'm to something else. But, yeah. Oh, and George MacDonald has a book. So there's The Princess and the Goblin and mm-hmm. The Princess and the Curdy, the second of his. And it's so good. Uh, where there's a king and Curdy has to go in and all these people have like put the king into this lull, lulled him to sleep and poisoned him. And the king like represents us because we're called to be kings and priests. So it just goes into all of that, like the rulership in our own person 
as well. This keeps coming back to me, like God wants us to have a sound mind, like Second mm-hmm. Timothy one said. That's so, right. You know, and you know, He did not give us the spirit of fear, but of power, mm-hmm. love, and a sound mind. And this is like Thy kingdom come, like aligning our kingship with God's kingship. Mm-hmm. Just that's what comes through me. It's just like He wants us to clean up this kingdom within ourselves and. Pray for our kings in this world. <laughs> right, so if you think about the person yeah. as a microcosm of the creation. Yeah. Right? And we have such such frequent use, especially in the New Testament, of fruitfulness mm-hmm. as a sign of that interior transformation. This is exactly what's in mind in the backdrop of it, is that if the person is conceived of as the, as the domain of King Jesus, if he is enthroned, then we should expect fruitfulness. Mm-hmm. Right? Should come naturally, actually, from the inside out. Right, exactly. Yeah, that that is that is said to be like the again the naturally occurring pro- product of it. But mm-hmm. like with this in mind, and that has the macrocosm yeah. of the kingdom and the whole creation too. Yeah. Oh, good. You said it right. This is what comes to my mind: Revelation four eleven. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's right. The other thing that always jumps off the page for me, though, is the part about oppression and oppressors. Mm-hmm. And that that is theme yeah. mm-hmm. from Genesis to Revelation. It is. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that is worth exploring individually and collectively. Yep. The, the ways that ripples out and what that looks like interiorly mm-hmm. and then what that looks like in our society and then what that looks like in God's, you know, it's just so dimensional. There's so many aspects to Very that. Much. Ten hours Concept. of that, please. Yeah. How do we break the pieces and pieces of the oppressor? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that, that that's exactly right. You'd be pressed to find more, uh, like themes that are more um, voluminously represented in the scriptures than yeah. that. It matters yeah. to God. <laughs> and anywhere there is, there is, yeah, anywhere there is power being wielded to, to, um, at, at the, at the, to the oppression of those who have no power, um, that is a culture that will not long endure. And it's a, um, mm-hmm. it's a theme because it's the whole gospel yes. that, uh, we are powerless and impoverished, whether we know it or not. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, realizing the poverty of spirit um, in our own lives and the generosity of God in his mercy um, should have repercussions to our living out Mm -hmm. daily life uh, in community of people that are hard to have mercy on sometimes that's right and you know we're selfish and we don't want to we finally got ours i don't want to share it you know the but that whole idea that well you're powerless too and you're vulnerable and you're weak and you didn't get anything by yourself it was all given to you is a, a valuable framework from which to view our whole lives that's true yeah i think that's right as, as Jesus says to the churches in Revelation, right? You say that you are rich, but you are poor. Mm-hmm. You say that you are alive.
And blessed are the poor in spirit. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so it, it is a, it's a worthy meditation. And, and it's also, you know, I was, I was, on a, I was doing a podcast with a, with a friend recently, and, and, and she was asking the question about, you know, Magnificat and the language of he has put down the mighty from their seat and exalted the humble and meek, and whether this is an image of kind of social justice. And I think it is, but not in the way that we often speak of that now, mainly because um, our imagination um, almost almost, um, ubiquitously fails to imagine any correction of oppression that isn't simply the reverse reversal of oppressor and oppressed. Um, and the problem with that is, is that it's, that is as much a vicious action um, as the initial oppression. Um, and the the point of the gospel is that actually penetrates deep more deeply, and it undermines the whole um, the whole um, problem that makes such a binary possible. And that's why that's why this thing is this thing is a very complex conversation because um, it ends up being something that looks different than anyone imagines it because we can't imagine something that incisive and a, and a solution that's actually that final. And so most of our solutions to this fall radically short of that. And so that's that's the that's the um, the kind of the, the contemplative element of social justice meditation is actually. Uh, there is yet to be a model of social justice that sees far enough and imagines big enough. And it ends up um, all too often, and, and I'd say in the, the bigger the sense, the less local the sense, um, ends up just re- recapitulating the problem. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, that's the complication with that. And why this isn't a 30-minute conversation, it's actually a 10-hour <laughs> conversation. <laughs> uh, because, because of that very problem right there. Yeah. Well, because how, how do we do that in ourselves? Then? Exactly. Yeah, and so usually when we when we no No, that's the thing that's the difficulty is that often when we when we like let's take even in the moral life for example Mm -hmm. we take a symptom of of disorder. Where's our son? I'm going to hyper focus on it and I'm going to crush it. Yeah. Uh, All too often, if we don't take time to meditate on the whole cosmos of relationships around that issue, we will crush it at the expense of creating a a different and sometimes worse problem. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. I mean, see like the like see Western intervention in global affairs over the course of the whole like Mm -hmm. the whole latter half of the 20th century. Right? It's like we're going to solve the problem in that backwater part of the world, and we end up creating a really big problem, a much bigger problem in a lot of time. In a lot of times, one that comes back to bite us a lot of the time too. And like Jesus yeah. will be in the terrors. He lets them all go there for some reason. Right. Grow up together, and then at the end, it's an image of what the mind of God and the justice of God look like, yeah. which is that there's an element of letting these things come to fruition and show what they really are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And not to just hew down the entire field in the hopes of getting the thing we don't like out of there, yeah. right? Because in the end, that's not that's not God's justice. Yeah. You know, he won't touch the he won't touch the grain of wheat in order to get the tear next to it. Yeah. Because it ends up tearing up the if they pull it up, it pulls up the wheat as well. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, you could look at that like in a, like a living example of that would be like, um, for example, like in the late 1800s, the hanging laws of London, mm-hmm. right? Which is this period of, of just insanity, legal insanity, where um, you could get hanged for doing almost anything. Wow. Right? Like, like stealing a loaf of bread to get you hanged, right? Yeah, you cut down on a lot of crime that way. Mm-hmm. But you also hanged a lot of people that probably shouldn't have been hanged. Oh, right. Right? And, uh, and that, that, that's a problem. 
you know, and so this is where we get into questions like Psalm 72 brings us. Um, this is this is the, the the meditation that goes on to 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 emerge from it. It's a very complex meditation. So let's jump back in. Oh yeah, Lori, I want to hear what you think first. Yeah. When I'm reading this right now, I'm seeing that I could do two kingdoms. Yes. Do live in this kingdom, mm-hmm. with Christ as king, mm-hmm. and unity where the oppressed. Yep. I also live in a kingdom that's right. So I get to be on both. But I, but I'm reading this thing. It's mm-hmm. right here, right? I just forget that. And we, have, we have to remember, too, that this is downstream from Samuel's warning to the people when they demanded of him a king. Yeah. Oh. And, 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 all, and a lot, all the meditations in the scriptures on kingship are downstream from that very incisive warning about kings. He says, you don't know what you're asking for. In fact, the thing you think you're asking for is actually going to cause you a lot of misery and a lot of problems. And if you, if you desire it, the Lord will give it to you. But what you really want is the is the righteous king. Right. But you will not you're, that that there is one who is righteous, and you won't get that, especially not in Saul. So, um, okay, let's jump back in here. Can I say one? Thing? Yes, uh, jump in, please. Uh, uh, no, I was just thinking the beginning of the psalm to me. Uh, you were saying what is it? What does it symbolize? Yeah, me? what does it bring to mind? Yeah, what what kind of things does it stir up? It, to me, it symbolizes the great love of a father to a son hmm. and for his, his, his wish for success and for, you know, for his son to succeed in all of the, the for, his, for his kingdom to flourish. And I think that goes back to God to Jesus, and then that goes back from Jesus to us, is that, that desire to see us do well. That's, think, that's what I'm getting out of the first part. Of I think the, that's a really good point, you know, that, and again, that's that figuring of father, of the father's prayer for his son that we have to remember that this is an image of, yeah, the relationship between God the father and God the son, the first and second persons of the Trinity in the spirit of their, of their great love and unity, um, which is um, that the father is always giving and, and willing everything to be given to his son. And the son is then in turn offering all things eucharistically to his father. And so there's this perfect, uninterrupted cycle of that between God the Father and God the Son. Um, the images of that relationship in the um, in the in the kind of the human realm often don't go as smoothly as that. Yeah. And that becomes the problem. Yeah. Is that in any way we don't like the son offer all that has been given to us eucharistically? That is where we start to experience death. Mm-hmm. Oh, here, it's you. Okay, so let's jump back in, because we have a, a prolonged period here with a bunch of names. And this is where we uh, we would have heard this in Mass today. He shall have, have dominion also from sea to sea. In this case, this is Atlantic to Pacific. This is, uh, this is the um, Dead Sea to the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. It's envisioning the kind of the sea on either side book, that bookends um, the, the Levant, this strip of land, this fertile strip of land along the Mediterranean coast where Israel sits. Um, from sea to sea, from the river, this is the great Euphrates River to the north in the fertile crescent of Mesopotamia, to the ends of the earth, which is Spain. Mm-hmm. 
um, at that time. Yeah, so it's it's envisioning the the the, uh, the the pillars of Hercules, as it were, which is the Strait of Gibraltar, um, and very you know, and again, only minor exploration at this point um, to that point, and then beyond it. Um, so that is it's basically pointing out a kind of compass direction here, right? It's saying like um, it's it's point it's saying like every like to the the furthest things we're aware of, that's where his may his kingdom extend, right? And so this is a way of saying again. Uh, kind of a hyperbole that says to the ends of the known earth, right? To the ends of the world. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him. That's a a whole Bible study in itself right there, but largely this refers to the people on the other side of the Jordan River, um, which connects the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, right? Um, and you have, um, on the other side of that, you have a lot of the ancient adversaries of Israel, particularly the Moabites and the Edomites. Um, the Edomites and the Moabites, they uh, made life very difficult uh, for Israel as they were going through the wilderness. And then after, when, when Babylon and Assyria start harassing Israel, they are the first in line to help them harass Israel. Um, and so the enemies, uh, those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, is a way of saying that even the great and adversarial nations of, of Moab and, um, and Edom will be made to be subjugated. Um, even though, the, like, historically, they were very, very, very rarely and only very tenuously subjugated. So this is, a, this is again, kind of a hyperbol hyperbolic image. And his enemies will lick the dust. This is an image of them being a kind of um, a satanic enemy and ultimately an adversary. Uh, because, again, that image of licking the dust goes back to the curse of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, of crawling on their belly and licking up the dust. It's like a victory over that serpent, which is which is associated with these two people groups. They're like satanic enemies, the ultimate like uh, cultural enemy. Good thing we don't see that today. I know we never see people <laughs> comparing their uh, their uh, their uh, you know national adversaries or political adversaries to Satan. We never never see that anymore. We're much more moderate now. Uh, now the kings of Tarshish and of the Isles. Tarshish is one of these mysterious names in uh, in in the Old Testament. It can refer to probably one of three places. One is um, uh, Tarsus, um, which is where St. Paul is from, or will, will be born centuries later. Uh, and that's up in um, Kilikia, which is a, a province along the southern edge of Asia Minor. What's it called? Uh, Kilikia or Cilicia, oh. um, even though that would be, they would be, it'd be a hard sea rather than a soft sea. So Kilikia or Cilicia, which is along the curve um, as Asia Minor turns downward into the kind of, into like Syria and Jordan and uh, in Israel. Um, into that area. And then, so you have that as one potential. Another Tarshish was up in um, what is now known as, uh, what is now Sicily. Um, that's another place. And then there's a third Tarshish just past the Strait of Gibraltar along the coastland of Spain. And Tarshish is one of these weird words that has a lot of um, etymological connection to, like, um, uh, to um, smelting or smelting. And so there were three major centers along the North Mediterranean coast where there was a lot of ore, ore processing. Um, and by the time of the reign of Solomon, a lot of this was being imported. Um, a lot of silver smelting and um, copper smelting, um, sorry, bronze smelting was being brought over um, to Israel to build their funding, to, to supply the building projects. And so Tarshish is, is a very, is a, is a sort of a catch-all name for a very um, um, like mineral rich and a very like like material and uh, raw ore rich kind of place, and it refers again to another distant kind of place, likely the one over in like um, in Sicily, 
um, which is another kind of way of saying like another corner of the earth, right? Mm -hmm. Way, way, way out there. Um, and then also the isles in this case refer to probably the Greek lands, uh, the isles along the like the, the, the uh, along the Ionian Sea there. And so um, this so like the far off places of like Italy and Greece um, are there. So we'll bring presents. The kings of Sheba. Sheba, in this case, being um, being uh, down in, um, in uh, Africa, and Seba, which is probably like Ethiopia, um, and so like the, the southernmost kind of boundaries. Sheba, of course, being along like the kind of Ara like the like in the kind of it's either Sheba in this case could be like Africa or like Arabia, um, and then Seba, which is this like again we don't really know exactly where this is, but it's likely somewhere down near Ethiopia. Um, will offer gifts. This is a, a way of saying the southernmost imaginable boundary of this kingdom will be tributaries to the king. So a lot of this is to say, um, this whole paragraph is basically to say, every known compass direction, as far as one can imagine, and as far as has been explored, will be part of his kingdom, either directly under his rule or a vassal state that is dumping its resources into his, um, into his projects. So including the great ancestral enemies, which is an even bigger kind of flux. Now we're back. So we've looked at this global perspective, but now we immediately come back to the local perspective. Even though he has this great and unimaginably large kingdom, nevertheless, we pivot then immediately, for he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy, will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence and precious shall their blood, shall be their blood in his sight. Right? Again, in Jewish imagination, blood is the, is the um, signifier of life. Life is in the blood. So it's not, doesn't mean shed blood. Yeah, it can be. Yeah, when, when blood is unjustly shed, yeah, it will be like, it, it, you know, this will be, um, even, even in the aftermath of this, like this will be visited upon those who do that. So he will vindicate the poor and needy when they cry to him. So we have, we have, we, in some, the repetition of this sentiment here of attending to the local cause of the poor and, and oppressed is magnified now because of what we've just seen in the global expanse of his kingdom. So we can see like, okay, yeah, if you were just king over a tiny little piece of land, you'd have the time and mental space to like attend to all the little like group of people that you're the ruler over, right? But like the idea is his kingdom will basically be global, and yet nevertheless, he will never forget the, time, the, the, the small guy, the little guy. Now let's pause there and ask how that changes our perspective there and how that like kind of interacts with our ideas of authority and kingship. <laughs> how does that alter expectation there? I'm not sure I understand your question. Yeah, so think about that. We've repeated this phrase um, of attending to the poor and needy twice now. There's two, two kind of stanzas that are dedicated to it. But what has changed between them? The global perspective? Yeah, so talk to me about that. What does that call to mind? What does that stir up as you hear that? For me, it stirs up that there's this, um, this effect like a, pebble, you know, in a, in a pond, it, it has this, what is that word, you know, where it goes out, it has its uh, mm -hmm. uh, collateral effect on the surrounding countries and the surrounding regions. 
kind of. I don't know. That's, that's, that's what I think of. Yeah, no, that, that's, I think that's spot on. What else does this stir up? Yeah, Lori. I keep bringing this to Jesus. We know when Jesus was on earth, he Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that it's an impo- it's an image we can we can like unimaginably associate with any earthly king. So it pushes the horizon of our vision of kingship beyond any imaginable sitting king. Mm-hmm. Exactly where Laurie's directing us, which is this idea of a of a, what, what what starts to develop in the Psalter from here on out, which is a kind of messianic horizon to the idea of a king, which is the healing of that 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 impoverished vision of kingship that Samuel warns the people about. What you're asking for. You're asking for a king, but what you're asking for isn't really a king. Yeah. What the Lord wants to give you in a king is so much beyond that. Yeah. Right? And we start to see the pushing of this idea of kingship beyond any conceivable actual like 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 king. And so the question becomes, who is this king that can be like this? And it becomes a kind of question that that it, that, that, that that then kind of coalesces into an expectation. And so when Jesus comes. And starts to bear evidence in his ministry that he that he is the one, the, the, the Christus, right, the anointed king. The expectation will be, well, we should expect that all of this will now come to bear. And yet there'll be yet another inversion of that expectation, right? And the horizon of his kingship is going to say, yeah, what you're looking for is that Israel will be really great again. Right? That, that its borderlands will expand. But even that is not enough. It's too small. For what I actually have come to give you. He shall live. And the gold of Sheba shall be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually. And daily he shall be praised. This is one of those uh, that the articles. The prepositions. For and of. That is um, again an ambiguous kind of preposition. And it gives us a way of, of looking at this again. With a kind of expansion beyond. A, a sitting king to a kind of messianic expectation. Because if it's for the king, sure, we can imagine praying for the king. We pray for the sitting authorities, the civil authorities all the time in our church. But if prayer is made to, or if prayer is made to him, which is another inflection of that preposition, then we're talking about a divine figure. So our expectation goes like, okay, so if he has the mind of God, and he has the righteousness of God, and now it's like he's receiving worship like a god, um, this is something beyond the, the proper domain of just, just a king, no matter how great that king is. And daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth. Again, we're returning to this kind of, we're again, kind of chiastically back to this agricultural image, right? Mm-hmm. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth on top of the mountains. Again, that's that hyperbolic image of grain that's so voluminous, it's run out of space to grow. So we have to use the mountaintops to, to, for it to grow. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon. Again, referring to the great cedar forests of Lebanon and saying our wheat will be like that, will be as tall and as thick as a cedar tree. And those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun. Which again contrasts back up to that image of moon again, right? As lo- until the moon is no more but as long as the sun. And so now we've kind of crossed that threshold and the name of this king will be, will, will somehow transcend that, 
that boundary of, of moon and sun, right? It will go beyond the limits of just transitory waxing and waning authority and will somehow achieve a permanence that is not like any king we've imagined or seen. And men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. And again, referring back to that global scope to this thing. So this is the end of the psalm, um, the psalm proper. And the rest of this uh, the psalm is actually uh, an editorial epigram or sort of a, an epilogue that closes the second book of the psalms. So this is where we end the, uh, the like Psalm 72 proper about this um, sitting king. So all nations shall call him blessed. But then there's this, inf- there's this point of, of inflection here between the next verse right there of, of, that hinges around this word blessed, right? Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. And there's this really ponderous kind of um, attachment of this as the, as the, la- the last of the second book, and this um, kind of pr- hymn of praise to God at the end of it, um, th- in light of what we've just read, because the themes of the, pre- the preceding psalm are all kind of repeated here, but referring to God. And so there's this close association of the king we've been talking about in 72, which started out as evidently David's son Solomon, but then became great, like sort of started to loom greater than any imaginable king, even if David and Solomon were really great. And then kind of gives way to a meditation on God using the same language we just used to describe the image of a king. And so what we see here is this kind of like, emanating um, kind of horizons of this psalm. David and Solomon, then this idea of the Messianic king, and then ultimately the image of God beyond it. Would you refer to Solomon and David here as types of Christ? Yes, I would. Yeah, I would. And and it seems like in the psalm tradition, they are, I would call them kind of like um, figurings of Christ. Mm -hmm. But obviously, like, obviously like imperfect figurings um, and anticipations maybe. Because I've never yeah. conceptualized a type of Christ being one that would be flawed. Yeah. A type of Christ, I think of, a, of someone like, uh, um, uh, what, who, who, was the, uh, who was the priest back in um, Genesis? Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Yeah. Somebody like that. It's really ethereal. You don't know too much because he was mm-hmm. so holy. That we don't know enough if he sinned or not. We we only know one thing about him, and that's when he comes out to Abram, you know, right, right. Um, after his victory. So that would be a type of Christ, and I I didn't think of these flawed individuals be types of Christ. Yeah, yeah, no, but but again, we were all types, you know, lack the perfection of Christ. But again, there's a fullness that is anticipated in 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 more mixed characters. Right, Adam is a prefiguring of Christ. Right, who's called the, the second Adam? Right, even though Adam fell. You know? um, so we have to remember that that also in in the sense of the of the Old Testament, and really when we look at the Scriptures as a whole, Old and New Testament together, um, we're looking at um, we're looking at the like the the center who is Christ, mm-hmm. and then everything is a reflection of Him or an anticipation of Him, and so. Um, in that way, they and take the their moon more, and the sun. Yes, exactly, as the moon is to the sun, right? And in this case, he is both sun and moon. <laughs> but a moon that doesn't wax and wane. Yeah, wow. Right, which is a new kind of moon. So, 
Um, so this ending here takes the horizon of this psalm out to a meditation again on the nature of God and the blessing that God alone can impart and leaves us with this kind of ponderous question as Christians reading this of like of seeing the near association of the sitting king who also is like like a god. And again, see this as we read this as Christians, of course, as an anticipation of King Jesus, the God man, the only God man. And that brings us here, the amen and amen, which again is to say, let it be so and let it be so. And we see that repetition in there. That's like a, a, a hyper emphasis when we see repetition. Amen. Like that. amen and amen is like, like emphatically, let it be so. So. There, with this, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And this ends the kind of Davidic um, section of the Psalms. We'll pick up with kind of the priest Psalms that start to come up with this in 73, which is the oh, which is Asaph or Asaph, um, the, the kind of the, the pre, and we get into a kind of new genre, a subgenre of priestly Psalms that will start to come up after this. Temple Psalms. Any questions before we close up for the day? I think that I, I don't know how many of you were aware of it, but I had no idea that the five books of the Psalms mm -hmm. were equated to yeah. or tied to Genesis, Exodus. I don't think Bishop alluded to that. Yeah. So there's like the the, other, the five books of Moses, and you have the five books of the Psalter, and they have a they have a kind of dialogue between them. Seventy-two. I mean, it's we couldn't have asked for a better day to do seventy-two, right? Like it really was 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 perfect timing because um, because yeah, it's it's the Epiphany song, you know, it's repeated, uh, you know, in piecemeal throughout the whole season. Certainly, our our hearts have been enlightened. Well, I, I mean, like we should like it's good when when these things align with the season we're in too, and we can meditate on them more deeply that way. So, thanks to the church calendar. Um, let me pray for us, and then we'll conclude for the day. The Lord be with you. And Let us pray. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace this day and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much, friends. Thank you. Good to be with you today. Thank you. Friends so online, thank you. And I didn't bring up border politics once. <laughs> Thank you. <Yeah. laughs> Again, like, because the psalm uh, cuts us off from that. It puts yeah. our imagination further. So thing I didn't bring it. Yeah, because the psalm would have, would have been a rebuke to us if we had gone that way. Yeah. Wow. Excellent. Yeah, in the kingdom of God, that border will not exist. Yes. Yeah, it is. So at best, it's a tenuous goal. You know? Uh, no, because I'm, I'm finishing up one more that Amy Cardiff gave me, and now I'm, then yours is next, and then Vicky's is right after that. All right. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Hello. Oh, hi, sir. Hello. Hello. Hi. I'm the recipient of Jack's work. So I wanted to show me where it is on my wow. study. Yeah. It looks terrific there. Good, really well. Hey. Sat down there. Which I did. 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 I did
Did, did your husband enjoy my, that too? Yes. Yes. He's got a few com, uh, conversations to have. Is that oh, great? What's that? We've got to have you guys at lunchtime. Yeah. Yes.